Please remain standing with me and pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful for the many gifts and kindnesses that you give to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, would you be kind to us yet again this morning and feed us, we pray, through your Son, Jesus, as our Word, the Word of God for us. May he enliven the words that have been read and the words of this sermon to be for us food and also as his body and blood, Lord, nourish us, we pray, uh, as we come to the table. So we commend ourselves to your love and care. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Go ahead and turn with me to our gospel lesson from Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. We're going we're gonna to be there. We're going to start there, really just as a springboard, and then we'll end um, with a brief look at Jeremiah chapter 29. So you can go ahead and mark that in your Bible if you want to be able to get there quickly when we come. This sermon, like last week, is not going to be an in-depth exegesis of these texts. It's more of a theological kind of teaching. And so I want you to follow the train of thought as we move on. It's not a difficult one, but it's one I want us to be paying attention to as we move from Matthew to Jeremiah. Last Sunday, we laid the groundwork for looking at what it means to be a Christian church that seeks the glory of God and the life of our neighbors. And this is what we saw last week. God's kingdom work of reconciling heaven and earth has already begun in Jesus and in us through rebirth, being born from above by water and the Spirit of God, a reference to baptism. This new birth is how we enter God's kingdom, according to Jesus, in John's Gospel, the third chapter. And as reborn citizens of God's kingdom, he commissions us to continue his work of reconciliation. God's work of reconciling heaven and earth begins in us. He's taking us, he's regenerating us, he's giving us his spirit, and we are the first bits of this creation that are reconciled to him. And one day, the Pope, the prayer, the work of God, the mission of God, is to extend that reconciliation over all of creation, where Paul reminds us in Colossians that God is reconciling all things to himself, all things, not just humanity, but all things in his son, Jesus. So as Reborn citizens of God's kingdom, God commissions us to continue his work of reconciliation, of reconciling heaven and earth in every human endeavor. Every human endeavor. Not some small, quiet, personal, spiritual corner of our life, but in every aspect of our lives. When we respond to the gospel by repentance and faith, and when we are baptized in water and the spirit, we are reconciled with God. The vertical dimension of our lives has been restored. And that that reconciliation, that restoration begins to heal and mend and grow new life in the horizontal dimension of our lives. We looked at last week how this desire to seek God's glory and to seek the life of our neighbors holds together two dimensions of the Christian life, a vertical one and a horizontal one. Our lives then become advanced signs, living billboards of God's new creation kingdom where heaven and earth are reconciled and made one, where God dwells with his people, as we hear at the end of the book of Revelation, when a city from heaven comes to dwell on earth, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. The rebirth of conversion then that makes us citizens of God's kingdom and members of his household also involves us becoming active participants in the mission of God to reclaim all of his good creation. 
and to cleanse it and restoring it, making it new. And we ended last week asking this question, what does all this have to do with seeking the glory of God and the life of our neighbors? And the answer, anyone? Everything. It has everything to do with seeking God's glory and the life of his neighbor. And hopefully that will become clear this morning. The question then we need to ask is, how then do we seek the glory of God? How then do we seek the life of our neighbors? Well, our gospel lesson answers this question quite clearly. We love God and we love our neighbors. This is no ambiguous love is love kind of love. This is real love. This is the love that's at the center of the universe, that's at the very heart of God. This is love that is clearly defined. This twin commandment cannot be separated. We cannot love God and hate our neighbor. Does, does no good to love God and hate your neighbor. We cannot hate our neighbor and love God. We likewise cannot love our neighbor and hate God. The love of neighbor there is a distorted love. Because if we love our neighbor and hate God, how will we lead them into the paths of righteousness? How will we lead them into true human flourishing if true human flourishing involves a restored, regenerated relationship with Jesus, with God the Father? These two interrelated commands are the greatest commandments, Jesus says, because they teach us what it is to live in a genuinely human way. A genuinely human way. And by genuinely human, I mean living in this world how God has always intended for us to live. You see, when God takes a people out of slavery in Egypt and he's going to make a nation out of them, he needs to train them about what it is to be genuinely human. I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The language that is used in the very first chapters of Genesis to express humanity's role in all of creation. God wants to train them to be Genuinely human again. Likewise, when Jesus comes, he fulfills the law of Moses, but institutes the law of Christ to govern us and our life together because he's remaking us again into one new humanity, as we heard Paul mention last week from Ephesians chapter 2. How did God make us to live? He made us to love. God made us to love and to be loved, but this morning we're focusing on the love we are to give God and neighbor. And this is how we glorify God. We love him. And we love God when we do what? Does anyone of you remember what Jesus says? When we love God, we do what? We keep his commandments. Jesus says that in chapter 14 of John's gospel in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And when we keep the commandments of God, our lives come into greater alignment with his life. Our character begins to resemble God's own character as he's revealed to us in Jesus. And do you begin to see kind of an emerging divine logic here, a movement of glorifying love? To glorify God is to love him. To love God is to obey his commandments. To obey his commandments is to become like God. Or as Peter tells us in 2 Peter, it is to become partakers of the divine nature. And this is where it gets really amazing. This is where it blows your mind as the role that God has given us, he has created us for in his creation. In all the scriptures, glory is very often used as an image to represent or describe God's transcendent nature and character that makes itself visible to people. In the scriptures, when we see a manifestation of God, what 
those folks saw and what they described was glory. When they saw God on the mountain, they described it as glory. Indeed, for example, when Moses desires to see God in Exodus chapter 33, what does he ask? I want to see your glory. I want to see your glory. So to glorify God, to love God, to obey him is to reveal him. To glorify him is to make God visible in this world. It is to live as we were always intended by God to live, as bearers of the divine image, representing God, reflecting God's nature and character in the world to glorify God. You see, the new birth by water and the Spirit reconciles us to God, restoring us in Christ as his image in creation. By the new birth, we can now live genuinely human lives as they were always intended to be lived, meaning we, empowered by the Spirit of God, can reflect God to the world in every sphere of existence, in every relationship. We can now, by God's power dwelling in us through his Spirit, we can now reflect God image God. We can make God visible. When God began to create the world in the early chapters of Genesis, he made it to be the theater of his glory. And he made lowly humanity, as we heard last week in Psalm chapter 8, he made lowly humanity, you and me, and he set us on the stage of creation to make him visible, to image him to reflect his dominion, his rule over all creation, to glorify him. And how do we make him visible within the world? That's the next question. If, if to glorify God is to make him visible by loving him and obeying his commandments and having our lives be transformed more and more into alignment with his own life, and as a result, making him known, making him visible, how then do we make him visible within the world and in our relationships with others in this horizontal plane? Of existence. Well, we love our neighbors. How do we love our neighbors? Well, the way that Jesus loved us, with a self-sacrificing, cruciform-shaped love. Jesus was clear about this in John's gospel in chapter 15, verses 12 and 13, when he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The Gospels are clear in this testimony. Jesus glorifies the Father chiefly on the cross. John specifically emphasizes this, where he lays down his life, expressing both ultimate love for God, a submission to the will of God, to the commands of God, but also ultimate love for neighbor, a self-sacrificing love for those next to us. He loved God the Father so much that he submitted himself fully to the will of the Father and bore the sins of the world on the cross, making the way for God not only to save us, but also to regenerate and make new the whole of creation. And Jesus, on the cross, expresses most poignantly what it is to love others, and he calls us as his disciples to such love. Elsewhere, he says, a new commandment I give to you. That you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. You will reflect me. You will make me visible 
to the degree that it is clear that you are a part of me. You are my disciples. That will be clear in the way that you love one another. By this sort of love, we glorify God in Christ, making him known. Our love is to make Jesus visible in this world. And oddly enough, that's the way we do battle with the forces of evil. Because in loving as Jesus loved, we're taking up the banner the battlefield banner of Christ. We're taking up our crosses and we're following him daily. Small acts of love and kindness in the name of Jesus and according to the way of Jesus strike a death blow to a brittle night. When we fix our gaze on Christ, the crucified one, we behold unfiltered glory. God made visible to us in human flesh. And that vision of God's glory seen in the face of the crucified one is utterly transformative for us, as Paul declares. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And what image are we being transformed into? The very image of God revealed in Christ, the cruciformed image of Jesus, God revealed in human flesh. And this is the image of love at its pinnacle, divine love expressed in human flesh. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, and I encourage you this week, just read through John's first letter. It's such a wonderful treatise that covers much of what we're talking about today, but listen to John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. See how, see how what last week we talked about is so instrumental and foundational for this week? Has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that, he, so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. Here's the pinnacle of love, that God sends his son to be the sacrifice for our sins, the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. He lives in us and his love is perfected. In us. Listen to that one more time, verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected. It's completed in us. In our love, people can see God. The God who cannot be seen, he can be revealed through the way we love one another and when we love one another according to the way of Jesus. If we love one another as Christ loved us, we make God known. We make him visible within the world and to our neighbors. And this is how we participate with God in his kingdom mission to reconcile all things to himself in Christ. To seek the glory of God and the life of our neighbors then is to love God with obedience in all of life and to love our neighbors not only as ourselves, but it gets elevated to love them as Jesus loved us. Now turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 29. 
We're going to end here. In this chapter, Jeremiah writes a letter, much like Paul and the other apostles write letters to the churches. He's writing a letter to the exiles who've been taken off from Jerusalem into Babylon. They were living among people who did not know God and certainly were not submitted to the way of life that God intends for humanity, for them that was revealed in the law of Moses. Likewise, the apostle Peter recognized that the church in every age finds itself in a similar situation. And so he addresses his first letter to those who are elect exiles, resident aliens, sojourners and foreigners among the societies and cultures they once called home. In this context, Jeremiah's exhortations are still relevant for us today. So look at verse 7. We'll begin there. Jeremiah says to these folks who have just been viciously ripped from their homes and their families, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. This is Jeremiah's way of saying, seek the life, seek the flourishing of your neighbor. The word welfare here is the Hebrew shalom, which is so often translated in our English into peace. But it, mean much, it means much more than the absence of war or the absence of hostility. Shalom means wholeness, completion, in the sense of complete well-being, where nothing is missing, nothing is out of place, nothing is out of alignment. And the idea is that life is complex and full of all sorts of moving pieces and relationships, and that when any of these are missing or off-kilter, shalom begins to unravel and to break apart. This is particularly true when humans are not reconciled to God. That huge piece of our relationship is we've been made, we've been made for God to love God and love others. And when that relationship with God is fractured and broken, there's no shalom. There's no peace. There's no well-being. There's no welfare for folks, for our neighbors, or for a city. Something vital is missing. A huge piece of life is missing and out of alignment. And people who are not reconciled to God produce societies and cultures that are out of alignment as well where something vital is missing. And for each of us, that's our own individual stories. Something vital was missing, and it was affecting our relationships, but we encountered Jesus. We met Jesus. He met us. The Father loved us so much he sent his Son. That was our story until he reconciled us by the Spirit to the Father, until we were born again by water and the Spirit of God. But now we have shalom. That reality of well-being, of complete well-being, has been opened up to us through Jesus. He's made shalom. He's made peace between us and the Father. Not only possible, but a living reality. We know and have experienced now the key to life and flourishing. It is reconciliation with God through Jesus by the Spirit. We know now the path to shalom, to true human flourishing, and we know that it comes through embracing the good news, through repentance and faith that in Jesus, God's kingdom has come. Therefore, we strive to alert our neighbors to the universal reign of God. That's our mission. That's love. Striving to alert our neighbors to the universal reign of God. That's the good news. That Jesus showed up as king 
And God validated that when he died on the cross by raising him from the dead. The good news is a proclamation of a reality. Jesus is king. God's kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel, as Jesus tells us in the beginning of Mark's gospel. We strive to alert our neighbors to the universal reign of God who loves them. Who loves them. And we do this by loving God fully and wholly in our lives and by loving our neighbors in every sphere of human life and in every human endeavor, making him visible. And how do we do this? Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, I'm just going to be very brief here. In Epiphany Tide, during Epiphany Tide, we're going to look at this aspect of loving our neighbors, seeking the welfare of our city, the life of our our neighbors more fully uh, when we come to Epiphany Tide in the new year. How do we do this? How do we love our neighbors in every aspect of human life, in every human endeavor? We build homes. We build homes submitted to King Jesus, where cruciform love fills every corner, every nook and cranny, and from where such love spills out onto the streets, into our neighborhoods, into our relationships with the elderly lady that lives behind you. Or the crazy guy with long hair that lives in, across the street from you. I'm describing my neighbors. He's not that crazy. We build homes. We plant gardens. That is, we work. We labor. Practicing medicine or law. Fixing plumbing or cars. Raising children or livestock. And so often, those appear to be the same thing. Oh, you caught it. Good. Maintaining honest accounts, if we're an accountant or starting businesses, whatever it is we labor to do in this world. We love God and we love others, making him visible in those pursuits, in those vocations. We start families where those called to the vocation of marriage have children as God allows naturally or through fostering and adoption. We start families and we start churches. Churches are families. They're the household of God. We start churches where each person, whether single or married, is able to exercise their God-given maternal and paternal gifts to shepherd children, to shepherd youth, to shepherd young adults, and even maybe old adults to embrace Jesus, to embrace him as king, to embrace him as our good shepherd to learn the ways of love for God and love for neighbor in the home and in the church. So in every area of our lives and in every human endeavor, we are to seek God's glory in the life of our neighbors. We are to love God with our obedience and love our neighbors as Christ loved us. As we close, we must take this to heart. The gospel of God must ring true. The gospel of God must ring true in every area of our lives. If our lives do not make the gospel plausible, and by that I mean if our lives are not a living demonstration of its power and reality, we're not submitting ourselves to the king. God help us. We, are all, we all fall short of that. But by the power of the Spirit, our lives are continually being transformed as we fix ourselves, our gaze upon the crucified one. 
The gospel of God must ring true in every area of our lives. For how can someone believe our message that God loves them when we do not love one another? When we do not love our neighbor. When we do not love a coworker. When we do not love maybe our own father or mother, our own sister, cousin. When we do not love the person that cuts us off. So what can we do? Right now, we'll talk more about this in Epiphany Tide, but right now, we end where Jeremiah ends. Not only do we seek the welfare of this city, but we pray. We pray for God to help you grow in love for him and for others. We fall short, but God is not a God who is stingy with his grace and his kindness and his spirit. He desires when you come to him to transform your life ever more into the image of his son. So pray for him to do that work in you. When you have... When you have wounded someone, confess your sin to them and to God, asking for forgiveness. And you know what? He forgives. And then second, pray for others to come to know God and to be reconciled for him. That's that's what it means for us to pray on behalf of the city, to pray on behalf of our neighbors, so that that missing piece of their lives that is holding them back from experiencing true human flourishing is restored. That block on the wall is set back into place. Their lives are realigned again with the creator who made them for this very purpose, to love him and to love others. So pray that God increases your love for him and for others and pray that others in this world, by you making God visible, come to experience a reconciled relationship with their creator in Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.